Good morning. Can we take a break from talking about protests and police and viruses for a minute? Because, my goodness, there's apparently some really big breaking news out there. <laughs> Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, yeah, you were, we're having some phone issues here, so I, I will we'll dispense with the phone number for right now. You can you can tweet me at EW Erickson. How about that? Uh, you can I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name E.W. Erickson uh, in any event. Welcome. Um, so I, I, I want to I, I, we need to we'll, we'll get into all this other stuff. But the breaking news, the big news of the day, if you believe the, the media, the giant ginormous massive news of the day is that people who did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016 are not going to vote for him in, in 2020. This is a huge story. Uh, Jonathan Martin, good reporter, by the way, at the New York Times, uh, his pedigree is National Review. And it, he is uh, has a big story about how that you've got this ongoing litany of people who aren't going to vote for the president in 2020. Uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, uh, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, on and on we go. The, the very same people who didn't vote for him in 2016. As if this is big news, everybody knew, except George W. Bush's office has released a statement today saying he has retired from public life. He does not comment on pol on politics, and he is not uh, has not made up his mind, nor has he said he would not vote for the president of the United States. Uh, so you've got one former president coming out and saying, this isn't true. I did not say this. And yet the media is running with it. They're also running with Mitt Romney marching in the Black Lives Matters protest. Mitt Romney, you see, they say he will not be voting for Donald Trump either. Mitt Romney didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, I, I, so let me let me give you my, my prevailing thought here. What we are going to see, it is June 8th, uh, the, the election still months away in November. I do think where the election held today, Joe Biden would win, and, and I'll get to this in a little bit. Uh, just because you and everyone you know uh, supports the president doesn't mean that the president's going to win. Uh, when you're, Even if you think you're right, know when you're in the minority. And the polling does bode poorly for the president. In fact, you can say the polling is wrong, but the president's advisors had a crisis meeting this weekend because of their internal polling, and their internal polling is better than the media polling. And if they're having a crisis meeting among a group of people who hate each other's guts trying to come together to get the president reelected, you know things aren't great for the president. But, 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 the economy and the virus – what the president needs to do is keep his eye on the prize. If the economy rebounds and there are good signs that the economy will, then the president's going to do okay. But I, I so I, I really do believe that much of the media focus now, they, they know they can throw Donald Trump off his game now. They know it. The, the president has shown remark, a remarkable lack of discipline when it comes to social media. And for a time, the media, anytime the president tweeted something, would go off zealously in that direction. And now the media has realized it works in the other direction as well. When they go off in a particular direction, they can get the president to respond. 
So if you go out and you and you do a story that Colin Powell and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter and the like are not going to vote for Donald Trump, by God, you know exactly what Donald Trump is going to talk about. If the New York Times covers the story, then Donald Trump is going to rush out in, in uh, opposition to the story. He's going to spend all of his time uh, and, and he's going to increasingly take his eye off the economy and the virus. And trying to explain this to the president, well, that's above everybody's pay grade. No, nobody seems to be able to do that. And that's part of the problem here. There is a deep frustration among parts of the president's team that they can't get the president to focus. Now, they've never been able to get the president to focus. But in the past, uh, that's actually worked well for the president. It's worked well for the president in the past because in the past, the president's been able to seize upon and galvanize uh, a, a host of people uh, and, and get them to focus with him in the direction he wants to go. And by going in every single direction, the president was able to provide a <clears throat> Swedish word, smorgasbord, of all sorts of things of all that all sorts of people could focus on. Ah, he's over here talking about this. Hey, that's my show. Oh, wait, he's over here. That's their issue. Oh, wait, he's right here. That's your issue. And the president, by firing in every direction, gets something. Oh, hey, the president cares about this issue, and this is my issue, and I'm going to go do it. Well, now the media realizes they can do it to the president, and that's part of the problem. The media realizes just as the president could fire here and here and here and here and here, and and, and the media would chase each of those stories, the media now realizes if it, it just spreads out stories across the board that are anti-Trump, the president's going to go after every single one of those, and he's not going to keep his eye on the prize. He's not going to focus on the economy and jobs and the virus. And that's what's going to get him elected. You don't believe me. The, the polling is bad for the president. But here's Jonathan Carl over at ABC News. Uh, well, it looked grim four years ago as well in the 2016 campaign for Donald Trump, and he ended up winning. But he will focus on the economy because those polls also show that more people trust Trump with the economy than trust Biden. So that is his issue. That's where he will focus. That's where he will focus. Now, th that was the short clip. Let me play you the longer clip of this so you can mull it a little more of what Carl, Carl's point is. And, and John Carl, one of the things the president wants to do is change the subject. I mean, he's talking about law and order, but he was also talking about economic numbers this week. But I'm, I'm just looking at an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that says among voters living in the top 2020 battleground states, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, et cetera, Biden's combined lead over Trump is eight points 50% to 42%. I'm sure he really wants to talk about the economy now. Uh, well, it looked grim four years ago as well in the 2016 campaign for Donald Trump, and he ended up winning. But he will focus on the economy because those polls also show that more people trust Trump with the economy than trust Biden. So that is his issue. That's where he will focus. See how the polling was shaped and, and the premise of the question. It's helpful to see both sides of this from what Carl is talking about. The swing state polling, not the national polling, the swing state polling. The swing state polling. And these reporters know that if they can get the president off his game, that the president's not going to focus on the economy. I mean, to Carl's point, John, Jonathan Carl's point, the economy is what's going to make or break this president. But there's an underlying current here, too, that you got to understand that 
if people feel disrupted in their world, they're not going to feel that things are going well. But you see, when things are going well, when things are going well, when people are doing all right, they tend to be able to appreciate the economy. But when things are going badly, they tend not to be able to appreciate the economy. And remember, it's not just Americans tend to be good people, and we tend to fret about our neighbors as well. So when our economy is doing well, we tend to think that, hey, uh, is our neighbor doing okay? Has our neighbor gotten his job back? And when you've got all this calamity and chaos around you, it's really hard to focus on that stuff. The president needs to be able to focus on it so other people can focus on it. The president needs to every day be talking about the economy rebounding instead of everything else the president talked about. The president doesn't need to talk about Colin Powell not supporting him. The president has been on social media beating up Colin Powell. Colin Powell didn't support him four years ago. What would make him think Colin Powell would support him today? The media tried it out. I I didn't even bother getting the audio clips of Colin Powell being on with Jake Tapper on CNN this weekend because all he said is the same stuff he said four years ago. Barack Obama not voting for Donald Trump. Oh, my goodness. Breaking news. Barack Obama isn't going to vote for Donald Trump. General Mattis not voting for Donald Trump. In the minds of the military, that's a big one. And General Mattis is a, a highly respected figure, but... Mattis didn't vote for President Trump four years ago. How do you know, Erickson? Oh, I know. Most, if not all of these people didn't vote for the president four years ago. So why is it breaking news? Why is it a big New York Times story? That's the question you got to ask yourself. Not why are these people not voting for the president? They didn't vote for him last time. Why is it a big story in 2020 that these same people aren't voting for him now? Fan fiction for la resistance. You see, you you got all this polling that's coming out. And the polling's not good for the president, but there's this underlying sentiment in the president, in in the polling, that is very good for the president. The economy. More Americans think the president can deal with the economy better than Joe Biden. More Americans think the president will get them back to work than Joe Biden. he can get them back to work, then he's doing okay. And now you've got this craziness out there, the defund the police stuff, all, all of these things. And so the left is, is amping up crazy. And if the left is amping up crazy, we, we got to distract from it. We, we got to point out all these major prominent non-crazy people are not voting for the president. And we got to get the president to focus over here. We, we can't get the president to focus on defund the police. We got to get the president to focus over here. And, and the media knows, they know, and the president's team knows the president does this. It is a deep underlying frustration with people who work for the president right now that the president is undisciplined. Now, he was undisciplined in 2016, 17, 18, 19. Well, now we're in the election season. It's a re-election season. He's the incumbent president. People expect an incumbent president to act a particular way, and he's not doing that. Now, this president people give latitude to because he's a non-traditional president. And most of the president supporters, if you're listening right now and you're a diehard supporter of the president, you're screaming at me that it doesn't matter, except it does, and you're wrong. And you are in the minority and you're surrounded with people who agree with you and you can't see that because we're not worried about you. The president won the suburbs in 2016. Brian Kemp here in Georgia lost them in 2018. It looks like they're swipping away from the Republicans in 2020 for the congressional races. 
we're not worried about you. We're not worried about Trump country. So I, I, interesting phenomena. So I, my wife and I, we like to ride around uh, one day whenever I make money and get out of debt and buy land and build a house and uh, Lake Toposofsky here in, in Middle Georgia, gorgeous area. And we drove beyond that. We went out into the rural, rural part of Bibb County, into Crawford and Peach County and in the Lizella area. The number of houses with Trump flags in their yards, God bless them. Uh, these people are committed to the president. And, and you see that around where I am. Maybe you don't where you are, but I bet you do. People who have have Trump Pence 2020 flags in their yard. I, I I don't ever remember anyone, even Democrats, flying flags for a presidential candidate. These are committed supporters of the president. And they like the president because they have felt left behind by the economy, left behind by politicians of both parties, left behind by society, put upon by society, ridiculed by society, treated as deplorables by, by the Democrats, as Bible thumper gun toters by the Democrats, head padded by Republicans who otherwise chose to ignore them and leave them behind. They love this president because this president remembers them. This president knows that they're the base. They are as loyal to him as he is to them. But you can't just talk about those people because there aren't enough of them to get the president reelected. You got to talk about the people who like the president's policies, but they don't like him. You got to talk about the people who they prefer him to Joe Biden, but they feel unstable. They, they feel destabilized in the country. You, you got to talk about the people who are Republicans, but they hold him in contempt. You got to talk about women. Now, they, they, there's actually an interesting angle on female voters. Female voters in the suburbs are more troubled by these protests than white male voters are. White women are more concerned than white men about all the protesting. The president could capitalize on that, except they don't like the president right now. If he could focus, he could probably get them. You can't just keep saying the polls are all wrong, the polls are all wrong. If the polls are all wrong, why is the president's team, a very smart team, pouring money into figuring out through deep polling what's going on with the country? The reason is because the polling is right. You can take away the polling from California, New York, and look at the swing state polling, and the swing state polling shows the president's got problems. But the swing state polling also shows there are some huge advantages the president has. And the president's team is trying to get him to focus on those advantages, which is why the New York Times is out there trying to distract him with all these stories about all these people who didn't vote for him in 2016, suddenly deciding, oh, my goodness, shocker, they're not going to vote for him again. They're trying to throw the president off his game. That reporting in the New York Times on the front page had nothing to do with informing you of anything. It had everything to do with trying to distract the president. He needs to not take the bait. At the bottom of the next hour, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me. He is getting ready for the start of the legislative session. I definitely will ask him about hate crimes legislation. There's a lot of stuff they're going to have to deal with. I'm looking at the, the tracking cases. We still have a downward trajectory in the state of Georgia for COVID-19 cases. Uh, the, you remember that that spike on May 18th? It was a huge spike of about 1,000 cases. It's been reduced to 891 cases. Uh, and the same thing happening on May 26th. There was another spike, but as they reassign those, that number continues to fall as well, which is pushing the seven-day average to continue to go down. Now, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I want to see, for example, uh, in my county, Bibb County, here in middle Georgia, uh, yet that we've got a downward trajectory. Remember that they said that we would have, uh, that was the big news here in Bibb County, all the epidemiologists, when the 
uh, when when the governor's office said we could reopen for business, all the local epidemiologists, oh, we're not going to have our spike until towards the end of May. Well, we're into June now, and the 14-day rolling average shows that the the spike came in April, uh, April 29th, and it, it's been downhill from there. Uh, Floyd County is one of the interesting areas of the state as well where the, the spike has happened and then not happened in Floyd County. Uh, it looks like in Floyd County, well, the, the, the trend is actually not good for Floyd County, but we're actually not talking about a significant number of cases. Uh, on June 2nd, for example, there were 17 confirmed cases, which would be an all-time high, except they will reshuffle those around and put them back in the right spot. Uh, re- remember, they take all the cases that come in in a day, even if the test wasn't uh, based on when symptoms were presented and they reassign based on both uh, when the person actually tested, not when the results come back and when the symptoms appeared. So uh, Floyd, not actually in a great trajectory compared to a lot of the state, but it's not a significant number of cases. What about Habersham County? Habersham County, man, you're, you're pretty much, I mean, gosh, you're, it looks like in your seven day rolling average, you get out to June 7th uh, and you've got, hard like one case that's great um uh where where else let let me do one more county here just so we get a sense of this there's a reason that i'm doing this uh pickens county in pickens county you're pretty much flat non-existent anyway uh you've got uh uh, one confirmed case on june 4th you're you're good pickens county um so the reason i'm doing this is because we were told we were all told that there would be a big spike after the governor reopened. And we're now more than a month past that supposed big spike when the governor reopened the state, and we haven't seen it. Are we going to see it after the protests? This gets to my buddy Chris Burns. I need to get him on to, to have this conversation with me um, at some point from Dynamic Money. They're our sponsor, um, and he's a friend and my financial advisor, and we're going to the beach, and we'll be having these discussions, I'm sure, here with the uh, uh, – I don't want to talk politics at the beach, but nonetheless. Um, so the, the data shows that most of the people who went out for these protests – weren't wearing masks and they weren't social distancing and it takes 14 days for there to be a spike. And we're starting to see in New Jersey, for example, they're starting to see the case numbers go up and they're attributing them to beach parties, to to house parties at beach, not parties on the beaches, but parties at houses on the beach. Are we going to see it from the protest? Because here's the thing. If, if the cases don't go up, after all of these protests, after all of these protests nationwide, if we don't see a massive number of cases going up, then what we're going to find is a lot of people decide, hey, this was all overblown to begin with. And you're going to have people start going out and living their lives again. And the economy is going to rebound even further. It's almost as if some people in the media have a vested interest in making you scared to live your life right now, lest the economy rebound. Now, listen, I was totally in the shelter in place camp to flatten the curve, but we did. We flattened the curve. Inarguably, we flattened the curve, not just in the state, but in this country. 
And then suddenly they move the goalposts of, hey, wait, we can't get out of our house until we have a cure. And then all of a sudden you have all these people marching in the streets and a lot of epidemiologists who were demanding you stay home are like, oh, no, social justice, it, it, it's, it's more important than social distancing. But is it, though? If the virus rebounds, we're going to have some issues, but at least the president will be able to point to the experts of the protests as the cause and not him. I'm going to weigh in. Uh, I'm going in in dangerous territory, I, and I must be careful. And if you want to call in, you're allowed now. It looks like our, our phones are in order for now. Uh, the phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, this hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan, First Liberty. Uh, their website is firstlibertyga.com. If you are a business and you need access to capital to grow, uh, First Liberty is uh, where you need to go. If you need help getting into PPP for your business, First Liberty is where you need to go. Uh, in particular, if you are a business and uh, you got millions and you want to grow and have access to more millions, Yes, they, they they love to help your business become a really big business. Go to firstlibertyga.com and check them out. And thank you to them for their sponsorship. I, I'm I, I I wade fretfully into an area where you know the, these days with cancel culture it could be bad, but we need to go. You know there is a the controversy surrounding saying Black Lives Matters. It shouldn't be controversial to say. Black Lives Matter, because they do. And I understand, I, I don't think anyone should lose their job or be labeled a racist for saying all lives matter. But I also understand the sentiment that, yes, all lives matter. Uh, but right now we're, see, we're seeing between Almond Arbery and the George Floyd situation, uh, examples where it doesn't look like Black Lives Matter. So uh, say Black Lives Matter. Stand with them right now in the black community with what's going on. Yes, yes, all lives matter. Yes, but Right now, the issue is the treatment of our uh, brothers and sisters in this country who are black. But there is a difference between the phrase Black Lives Matter, a statement of fact, and the organization Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, ironically, started on Facebook, and now they're out to get Facebook. It started in, in, in chats and groups on Facebook. It, it spread now. We've got this organization, and a lot of people want to be sympathetic to and help Black Lives Matter. But if you are a church pastor, if you are a person of faith, you need to understand that some of the, the sentiments expressed by the organization are incompatible with your faith. I want to read for you part of their website, What We Believe. Four years ago, what is now known as the Black Lives Matter Global Network began to organize. It started out as a chapter-based, member-led organization whose mission was to build local power and to intervene when violence was inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. In the years since, we've committed to struggling together and to imagining and creating a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. Sounds really good. Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. 
Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have a shared desire for justice to act together in their communities. The impetus for that commitment was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. Okay. You, 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 you can take issue with the word struggling, sounds like something out of progressivism, whatnot, but a, a, a fair sentiment, one that we should all agree about. Given everything we see now with our eyes, but there's a problem here. Particularly if you are a person of faith, you want your church to get involved in in bringing uh, understanding and racial reconciliation to your community, you would think, oh, let, the Black Lives Matter, let me go to the group Black Lives Matter, but they're here. Let me read you some some more. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious belief, or disbelief, immigration status, or location. Not a problem there. But then we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Now you should be opposed to violence against transgender men and women. The problem here is dismantle cisgender privilege. And then we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. We foster a queer-affirming network. Um, Here's the problem. The Black Lives Matter organization has a secular worldview when it comes to biblical sexual orthodoxy and also views the two-parent nuclear family structure as Western prescribed as opposed to biblically ordained. You see, there is this this prevailing sentiment among progressive secular activists, uh, particularly those on the far, far left, that uh, the two-parent nuclear household itself is racist. Uh, And a lot of this has to do with the collapse of families in this country, particularly, and some would say disproportionately impacting the black community, that therefore we need to get rid of the the stigma of not having a two-parent nuclear household as opposed to getting back to it. See, these are things that when, when your faith comes into contact with this stuff, uh, something's got to give. And uh, this progressive organization is not going to give up their views. They're going to demand that you give up your views. If you are a Christian organization, if you are a person of faith, you need to stand up and speak with a very loud and clear voice that what is happening to the black community is wrong. But you cannot stand up with a loud voice and say, we need to be unshackled from the two-parent nuclear household. No, in fact, 
Uh, there's ample research that suggests that the two-parent nuclear household does way better at producing uh, stable citizens and productive members of society who become quite successful. Two-parent nuclear households in the black community actually outperform single-parent households in the black community, and two-parent single uh, nuclear households in the white community outperform single parents in the white community. This is not to disparage single parents, and every time this point comes up, there's always some Karen out there who says, why are you disparaging me because I'm a single? I, I, no one's disparaging you. God bless you for your hard work and we should all stand with you and support you and provide for you and take care of you and help you with your kids and all of that but let's also not dismiss what the data shows which is that children who are raised in a two-parent nuclear household particularly a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household tend to outperform all others and this is where the conversation with privilege ultimately winds up going, which is why I, I I hate using the phrase white privilege so much. We can acknowledge the reality that uh, people in the black community have different outcomes when they come into to contact with law enforcement and society than people in the white community. And a lot of it has to do with over time, uh, race and segregation and issues this country is still grappling with. And at the same time, recognize the fact that a, a growing up in a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household does not make you privileged. That it is, it does not set you apart in some way that others can't obtain. It maybe they they weren't raised that way, but it is what they should strive for as well. And saying somehow that the two parent nuclear household is bad, or or hang on, what what's their exact phrase? We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The Western prescribed nuclear family structure is just a bunch of BS. Now, I, l- let me let me add onto this and and read the full context because there is some part of this to agree with. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Well, that means being a good neighbor. But we shouldn't downplay that, that you know, your children, you do not you do not give birth to your child and push them out onto the front porch for society to raise. You raise your child and raise them with your values, and hopefully you raise them with good values where they love their neighbor, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, sexuality, you name it. But we should not reject the idea of the nuclear family. We should not reject biblical sexual ethics. And so there's going to be a big push for a whole lot of people to go down this road and support organizations like this. And I'm telling you, if you are a person of faith in your church, you be careful with the organizations you align with. We should all be able to agree, not only that racism is bad, but all of us should work towards ending it. But be careful the organization you choose to align with Be careful the organization you choose your church to align with. There will be people in your church who want to align with an organization like this. You can't do it if you subscribe to biblical orthodoxy. That's just the reality of it. Increasingly, what we're going to find is people of faith are being pushed. You know, I wrote about this this weekend in my newsletter. Um, Scripture says, test everything, hold to what is good. Well, what is good? Well, the, the world would tell you what the world says. What the mob says is good is good. No, uh, you, you've got to balance it out with Scripture. What does Scripture say is good and godly and true? 
test everything. And there are some things we know are good and godly and true, and those are the way the Bible orders the world. God created us male and female. We don't get to pick and choose. God wanted us to have two parents, male and female. This is, this is the order of things. It is the order in creation. It is the order in Genesis 1. And a lot of progressivism is secular. And that secularism is premised on things that are contrary to what people of faith view. And people of faith more and more are pushed into corners in this country. And more and more, a lot of people, this is the, the great hesitation of faith. Well, I see this even within the PCA today. I, so I'm in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. And there are a couple of prominent pastors within the PCA who uh, rejected the Manhattan Declaration and wanted the, the entire PCA to reject the Manhattan Declaration. Now, if you don't know what the Manhattan Declaration is, I was actually one of the original signatories for it. And all it says is, is that um, the, the the Bible affirms a, a worldview that premises a two-parent nuclear household and biblical sexual ethics, uh, that marriage is for a man and a woman, uh, marriage outside of uh, sex outside of marriage is wrong, uh, sex between two people of the same sex is always wrong. These are all things reflected in Scripture. And there are some prominent pastors within the PCA who said, "Oh, we we really should we shouldn't go along with this. We don't we don't agree we don't disagree with it, but we shouldn't bind ourselves to it." Now, why? If you if you don't disagree with it, why not say this is this is true? Because they really don't. The slow creep of liberalism within denominations, something that the Southern Baptists are fighting with right now, although overblown for political causes. Uh, the president pollutes everything, including conversations within the Southern Baptist Convention. Be- people are beside themselves that, oh my goodness, you call yourself a Christian, you're not supporting Trump. Ah, oh, well, yeah, heretics, heretics, yeah. The Bible doesn't care who you vote for. Let me just be clear on that. And I know that's a controversial statement for some, but really the Bible doesn't care. But it's, it's you're going to see people within your churches start saber-rattling on these issues. Everybody cares about this issue. Now, we've got to do something. Look, I, I mean, I'm getting every corporation in America is sending me uh, emails saying, hey, we're, 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 we're opposed to, to uh, racial injustice and we need to fight. Yes, you do. We all do. How you do it matters, though. And being co-opted by progressivism to do it is not the way to do it. You know, ultimately, what is the struggle? What what is the struggle? People on the left talk about the struggle. Do you know what the struggle is? It's about power. They don't have it, and they want it. It's not really about righting wrongs. Their view is that if they get in power, that rights the wrong. Not necessarily. They're not actually going to fix everything because the struggle continues. Why does the struggle continue? Because people must agitate constantly. And you see this in politics right now. How many of you are just exhausted, exhausted by the nonstop struggle in the media? That's all part of it. They want you to be exhausted. Because if you're exhausted, you'll give up and cave. They want you to be exhausted by the nonstop coverage of the struggle. They want you, just like they want to distract the president, they want to distract you from things being okay. It's really funny in the data. Majority of Americans believe that their community deals with these issues respectfully and responsively. It's the rest of the nation that has a problem. And it doesn't matter which community you're in, most people in that community say, you know what, we got our problems, but we're headed in the right direction. We're working together. It's the rest of you people who suck. And every community says that. 
the media wants you to be distracted from the fact that your community is pulling together. And instead, it wants you to squabble because the squabbling and the struggle brings progressives power, not you. That's what they want. And when it gets into your church, it becomes a whole nother game. You better be careful. Be careful. Test everything. Examine everything. Hold to what is good. And what is good, what is that which is bound by Scripture? Have you all seen the media just, just I mean, salivating over, um, over Mitt Romney joining the protests? Mitt Romney went out and marched in the Black Lives Matter protest. Yes, he did. Good for Mitt Romney. He was out there wearing a face mask, marching in the in the in the peaceful protest in Washington D.C. And the media is like, <gasps> Mitt Romney's out there. <gasps> we need more like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's such a good guy. Why can't more Republicans be like Mitt? Romney? I, I distinctly remember in 2012 when you people were attacking Mitt Romney as a racist who caused cancer and put his dog in a cage on the top of the car. I remember that. I really remember that. Don't y'all remember that? Because I remember that. Remember when the very same reporters and Democrats who are now hailing Mitt Romney ridiculed him for daring to suggest that the Russians might present a threat to us? Do you remember that? Because I remember that. It's, it's really remarkable to, I mean, it, just to, to watch all these people like, I never, you know, Mitt Romney has not changed. Whether you like Mitt Romney or not, uh, Mitt Romney has not changed. The only thing that's changed is that the Democrats find him useful to their side now. And because the Democrats find him useful to their side now, uh, the Democrats are willing to play up Mitt Romney and, and play up uh, Romney's view on the world. He, they're willing to play up Mitt Romney's uh, protestations against the president. They're willing to play up Mitt Romney being opposed to the president. They're willing to play up Mitt Romney being uh, unwilling to support the president during impeachment and the way that the president demanded. They're willing to do all of these things. And in so doing, they're willing to ignore their own past of defaming Mitt Romney and portraying Mitt Romney as something he wasn't. Remember, they actually did these stories on Mitt Romney causing some woman cancer because Mitt Romney is as part of what, Bain Capital or some some such, uh, it, fired some person who couldn't meet their health care and they died of cancer or some such. It, 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 the, the whole thing is just, I mean, good Lord, the the character assassination gets him. Remember, Gail Collins of the New York Times wrote the big story about Mitt Romney, put his dog in a dog carrier and strapped it to the top of the car and, and you couldn't vote for someone who did something like that to his dog. No. It's all rather silly to see them now saying that Mitt Romney is somehow the hero. This is the crazy thing. You know, in 10 years from now, the media is going to be celebrating Donald Trump, saying, oh, he's so much better than the guy, than the Republican we have now. If Nikki Haley, let, let's say let's say Joe Biden wins in November, 
and the Nikki Haley beats him in four years. You know that the media will be, oh, man, this Nikki, it, 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 at least Donald, we could deal with Donald Trump. We, we knew how to handle Donald Trump. Nikki Haley's just terrible. Yeah, I mean, you pick the Republican, Josh Howley, Tom, Tom Cotton, uh, the next Republican president. It'll all be, I, I, uh, the, uh, the, the, Donald Trump was so much better than them. Because that's the way it always works with them. Always the way it works with them. Now, when we come back, Las Vegas has reopened. And in some of the casinos, people aren't wearing masks and epidemiologists are starting to freak out around the country. People are going back and now suddenly after weeks of protest, we said, wait a second, don't we have a virus out there? And and, and the media said, oh, we, we've got to start shaming people again for going out. You can't go to a funeral and you can't go to church, but you can go to a protest. A lot of Americans have decided this was all political to begin with. And the media and the epidemiologists are discrediting their own research and their own statements. And a lot of people have decided, you know, just we're not going back. Some are actually suggesting we should shut down again and they're not going to get heard. They're not going to get listened to. They're not going to get believed. Uh, but in some of these states where they've allowed protests, you're starting to have people say, you know what? If they get to ignore the law and protest, I'm going to ignore the law and go get a haircut. I'm going to ignore the law and go to the beach. It's happening more and more, and they have only themselves to blame for it. They kept moving the goalposts until they got a protest that they could use against the president. And then suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, get outside, protest. If you get the virus, oh, well, just be careful. Cover your mouth when you cough and wash your hands. It's only going to go so far with these people. Jeff Duncan joins me at the bottom of the next hour. I love my kids to death, but schooling at home, it's been an adjustment, particularly for my wife, who's been doing most of it. And we're learning, in fact, that given the structure and all, my kids are probably going to be great bartenders if we continue this home from school thing. <laughs> Our kids' school is going to start up in August, it appears. Some schools, they're still not sure. Well, you may need flexibility. You may realize homeschooling is for you, but you need a structure. You want to find an online learning experience. Online learning has been new for a lot of us, Zoom calls for a lot of us, but Laurel Springs has been doing online learning for 30 years. As experts in online learning, Laurel Springs has the tools and the curriculum your child needs to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. If you're interested in trying online learning, try Laurel Springs. They're accredited with the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. It means that their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Eric today. Receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for your waived registration fee, laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you with me this morning as a tropical storm blows into the United States affecting our weather here in Georgia made landfall in Louisiana near where my parents live and uh, it's just muggy out there it's just gross and humid and and yuck Um, but that's all this tropical moisture floating up so uh, just be advised let me see yeah there's really nothing uh, that you need to be super worried about right now it just occasional sprinkles and rain is uh, this, we're, the far, far outer edges of the system coming through, it's just gross, uh, muggy and, and all. But uh, we will endeavor to proceed and move on. I want to, out of the gate, actually, 
uh, take a phone call, which I rarely do. But uh, this was about uh, the last hour. The, the big breaking news, if you weren't here, is that the people who didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 aren't going to vote for him now. <gasps> yeah, as if that's some sort of big deal. But apparently it is for some people in the news. And I want to go to Diane calling from Macon. Welcome. How are you? Um, okay. What's going on? Uh, I just want to contribute a comment about the loudmouth current and former establishment politicians against Trump. Mm-hmm. I believe they are just magnifying the divide between the establishment for unbalanced trade with no minimum wage third world countries, including communist countries, versus the non-establishment for balanced trade with living wage first world countries. You know, Diane, it, it's funny you should say this because this this is an underlying, I think, continued issue for a lot of the people who stand with this president that a lot of prior presidents and policymakers don't quite understand is the number of people who do feel left behind by the economic advances that happened in this country through free trade that tended to ignore a lot of people who were in jobs previously and put out of work because we could get the work that they were doing cheaper from essentially slave labor from China. And that's something I, I, I listen, I think the president has a winning issue if he makes this a core issue that we have got to end our dependence on China for cheap medicine, drugs, and national security things. Uh, you get your iPhone from China if you must, uh, but you shouldn't be getting your antibiotics from China. We should bring the manufacturing home, even if that means prices go up a little bit. And we got to be weary of the Chinese. Now, it's clearly they're, they're not our friend. And Joe Biden clearly, I don't think, is capable of dealing with the particular issue with China. Joe Biden seems not to be able to uh, deal with a lot of issues that are coming up. In fact, here's the vice president talking over the weekend about some of the issues that uh, they're going to trot out on Joe Biden. Families have faced in our cities. Joe Biden has emerged and he's saying you guys are making things worse and his campaign is bailing out rioters. How would you react to that? Well, I I was astonished uh, to hear that aides to Joe Biden's campaign uh, were were investing money to bail out people that had uh, destroyed property, looted, engaged in in rioting and so marred what should have otherwise been peaceful protests in cities around the country. But I'm not surprised by it. I mean, the, the, the truth is that we, um, we, we see uh, in Joe Biden a, a, a willingness to align himself uh, with, with people that are rioting on the streets, destroying the property and livelihoods, claiming the lives uh, of, of innocent civilians and law enforcement officers, and yet not speaking a word on behalf of those that have been victims. It's um, it, it's it, it's all a part of the predictable, divisive politics of the American left. You know, Joe Biden has not come out yet to decide to say to speak up on defunding police. Now, he's not really going to listen The Democrats, by and large, they're not going to come out and defund the police, but uh, there is a big movement on the left to defund the police. It's actually kind of funny to to see 
uh, people, even Al Sharpton come out and say, whoa, 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 we got to clarify this, guys. We got to clarify this. Uh, Al, Al Sharpton, who is in Minneapolis leading marches, comes back. They're de- they're literally going to shut down the police department in Minneapolis. And Al Sharpton's like, uh, guys, when Al Sharpton said, whoa, wait a second. Um, here, okay, so this is a Minneapolis City Councilwoman. I have not heard this. Uh, l- let me uh, let me see if I can rearrange my speakers here. I'm I'm having all sorts of speaker problems this morning. Uh, but I I gotta I gotta this is this is worth playing. This this is a woman who is on the Minneapolis City Council, and she has decided that by God they are going to defund the police. They have a veto. Even the hipster mayor of Minneapolis who proved himself incompetent does not want to defund the police. But the city council, they got a veto-proof majority to shut down the police department. Listen to this. This is one of the city council women talking to Allison Camerata a little while ago on TV. We have a state action against our police department, which gives us legal mechanisms in the very short term. You know, there's lessons from all over the country, all over the world that we're looking to yeah. um, to take immediate steps while we work toward building the systems that we would need to imagine that that future. Do you understand that the word dismantle or police free also makes some people nervous? For instance, what if in the middle of the night my home is broken into? Who do I call? Yes, I mean, I, I hear that loud and clear from a lot of my neighbors. And I know, and, and myself too, and I know that that comes from a place of privilege because for those of us for whom the system is working, I think we need to step back and imagine what it would feel like to already live in that reality where calling the police may mean more harm is done. What? What? <laughs> this is not going to go over well. This this is not going to go over well. That That... This comes from a place of privilege. You know, let's let's just for the sake of argument say it does. That in your upper little uh, upper middle class white neighborhood, when you call the police, you're probably going to be taken care of. And in your your poor inner city community, you call the police, and bad things may happen to you or your neighbors. Let's just say that's true. We're taking from those who it does work. Not to give to those who it doesn't work, but but to deny it to everyone. Because bad outcomes happen in some communities with some police. We must shut down the police forever. That's not really a compelling message for election. You may think it's a compelling message. You may be mad at me for putting it in that way. But it's not a message that's going to resonate with people. And it's one that's why you've even got Al Sharpton coming out saying, wait a second, guys, we can't go this way. Here's Trey Gowdy talking about this defund the police nonsense. You know, Maria, um, within communities of color, uh, the issues with law enforcement are much broader than who shoots whom. I mean, that's incredibly important, but it's arrest rates, it's sentencing disparities, it's access to bond, it's access to diversion programs. Senator Scott mentioned being stopped by, by law enforcement. Maria, he was stopped seven times as a law as a public official seven times the man your viewers are looking at was stopped by law enforcement he was stopped from entering the capitol even though he wears his senate lapel pin and looks like a cpa 
I look like a gangster and don't wear my house lapel pin, and I was never stopped. So the problems are much broader than just who shoots whom. Defunding the police okay. is the single dumbest idea I've ever heard. Who is going to process crime scenes, arrest bad people? Uh, who's going to enforce uh, uh, any law? Child sex abuse, homicide. Who's going to do it if it's not the police? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, kind of a problem for that. I really hope they run on this, y'all. Man, do I want them to run on this. But hey, don't ignore what Trey Gowdy was just saying about Tim Scott. Tim Scott, the the wonderful senator from South Carolina, a friend. Uh, enjoy that guy's company. I've had him to several of my conferences. And he's always he, he always talks about these issues, and, and he's fantastic. And Tim Scott is a sitting United States senator who gets stopped by the Capitol Police when he's wearing his pin. So you may not know this, but uh, if you're a member of Congress, every Congress is given a pin and only those member only members of Congress can wear it and they wear it on their lapel and the Capitol Police are trained to recognize that lapel pin. And they can go straight past security. They don't go through the x-ray machine. They, they don't do anything. They just whoosh, go straight on into Congress. And Tim Scott wears his lapel pin, and he still gets stopped by the police. He gets stopped by black police, and he gets stopped by white police. Why does Tim Scott, a sitting United States senator who does look like an accountant, why does he get stopped other than the color of his skin? And this, by the way, doesn't just happen to him. Other black members of Congress have the same problem. There, we don't need to deny that there is a problem. The question is, how do you fix the problem? And I will submit to you that the nation that brought you Jim Crow and segregation and the states that brought you Jim Crow and segregation don't, aren't really up for a solution on this problem. This is going to be a problem. This is going to be a, a solution that is born out over time, and people are getting impatient for it. And I get the impatience for it, but it's going to be up to you and me individually and not to the government. This is a generational problem. You know, so I, I got to I, – let me, let me bring this real-world stuff home. I was on city council in Macon, Georgia for a term. I left about four months before the end of my term. I got a job in radio – uh, FCC rules wouldn't let me keep my part-time $10,000 a year city council job and also a full-time salary in radio making way more than $10,000 a year. So I, I gave up the city council job. I wasn't going to run for re-election anyway. It was such a painful thing. When I was there, I, I noticed uh, younger members of the – there were still problems with the police. There, there were problems with the police. I, I have seen this being on a city council – in a, in a city that is majority black with a police department with a, a large portion of black police officers, there were still constant complaints from black residents of the community about their treatment by the police and encounters with the police. And a lot of them were valid complaints. A lot of them I saw with my own eyes. There, there were valid complaints that you and I would not have been stopped, but they were stopped. 
you and I, if we were stopped, would not be made to get out of our car, they would. And it was bothersome. But there were also a lot of other issues that weren't really about race. And what was so interesting to me is that older members of the council wanted to make everything about race. And younger members of the council, regardless of their race, did not. There were certainly issues that divided people based on their racial outlook or their partisan outlook or their philosophical outlook, but not everything was about race. But the older you got on the city council, the more likely you were to turn everything into an issue of race, even if it didn't really apply. And generationally, now the, the older people would say that the younger people are just so used to it, they don't even realize it's a race thing. They just think that's the way it is. I, in some cases, maybe so, but not in every case. And, but, but it is a time that takes healing. You know, we were a, we were a place that had slavery for 300 years. And then we had Jim Crow and, and legal segregation of the like for over a hundred years. And we're not even what really 50 years removed from the end of segregation. It, it is, it's obvious that there are still issues. And it's obvious that as as time goes on, things get better. And it's obvious that a lot of us need to step up and play a role. But it's also obvious that there are hucksters, shysters, and grifters out there who just want to come along and, and, and antagonize and profit off the issue. And they don't actually want a solution. There are a lot of people on both sides, by the way. This is this is not the the the, the people out there agitating on this. This is the other side as well. There there are People on all sides who don't actually want a solution because they profit off the division. They profit on us versus them. And our job as as decent people is to overcome the hucksters who would profit off the division and actually try to find ways in which we can unite. Unfortunately, in our political process right now, it's very hard, but it's necessary to try to find those areas. And frankly, I think it again comes back to focus on your community. Do you know where your homeless shelter is in your community? Do you know where your food bank is? Do you know where your soup kitchen is? Do you know where you can go and help the poor? Do you know where you can go and help the needy? Not just give money, but actually sweat equity. Do, do you know? Because we, all of us, abdicate this stuff to government, and government increasingly fails us on these things. And we and our churches and our local groups and our neighborhoods need to be involved in this stuff. And if you're not, you probably in some way need to get to be, and not everyone can go do it. Some people, it's it's better for you to write a check, but at least to be involved in some way uh, and, and to just tune out the people who profit by the division on both sides. You know, uh, sadly, well... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't put it that way. The legislature is coming back and they're going to do all sorts of dumb stuff after the election. The election's tomorrow. If you haven't voted by absentee, it's too late now. You can go vote tomorrow. And there is massive turnout, massive, massive, massive turnout in, in a lot of areas, uh, including in a lot of Republican primaries. So, you know, there, there's a, a race to replace Bill Heath. Uh, in the state Senate. And Jason Anavatarte, a buddy of mine, he's endorsed by the lieutenant governor and me. He's running. 
running against a longtime Democrat who served as a nonpartisan mayor but was active in the Democratic Party, now attacking Jason, claiming that he's a Democrat uh, when he's not. And uh, Jason was actually telling me there's big turnout on the race, and, and no one on either side really knows what it means. Uh, who are the people who are turning out? Are they engaged and are, are they working? There's also a congressional district in, in there. It, it is the 14th congressional district. So you've got all of the people up in the Rome area who are running. Uh, in fact, I will go through those candidates who qualified for the congressional races. So everybody gets a shout out on the radio, Democrat and Republican. Uh, up in the 14th and then the 9th and you got the 6th and you got the 7th and and around the state you've got people who are running for office to reshape the legislature and the state uh the polling out there is fairly stable for republicans in the state right now but pretty close for the governor and for the president the president's got to worry the governor doesn't because the governor's not on the ballot this year and frankly if joe biden gets elected in 2020 it does nothing but help Brian Kemp in 2022. And I hate to be that partisan about it, but that's just the reality of the situation. Uh, the, the president losing helps Republicans generally in 2022. The problem, however, is that this is the year you will elect people to draw the district lines. And the president being weak on the ballot will have down ballot problems in a lot of places. And in those down-ballot problems in a lot of places, if Republicans lose legislatures, they lose the ability to draw lines for Congress. And if they lose abilities to draw lines for Congress, they lose they, – they put their – the odds of taking back the House of Representatives by 10 uh, years. Now, here is one, one interesting analysis, though. Nate Silver from the 538 site, he's done a, a giant analysis. And when you actually look at it state by state, if you were to have a nonpartisan commission in states – that drew all the districts, it would actually overwhelmingly help Republicans right now because of where the country is in most states. Uh, the news is shaped by people in a bubble in New York and in California, uh, but the rest of us live in a world that is not in that bubble. And in most of the country, people still lean slightly conservative, still lean Republican, even if they don't like the president. And that's one of the issues that will be dealt with if, let's say the worst case scenario for Republicans, Joe Biden wins. The backlash in 2022 will be rather significant uh, because uh, there are a lot of people who don't like Joe Biden. And they don't like Donald Trump. And they just happen to like Donald Trump even less than Biden. So they'll go with Biden very much like what happened with Trump in 2016. People went with Trump even if they didn't particularly care for him because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. They'll go with Biden this time. But then we'll see this big swing back in 2022. So it'll hurt people like Abrams. This, I suspect, is one reason she wants to be vice president so much is she realizes that the odds of Biden winning are big, and that means the odds of her winning in 2022 are small. There will be a backlash against the Democrats if Biden wins. If the Republicans win again in 2020, though, there will be a backlash there as well against the Republicans. It always happens, folks. I, I'm not speaking out of turn. It just happens. The party not in the White House tends to do poorly in off-year elections. Now, we got a legislature coming back on Monday. The lieutenant governor of the state is going to join me after the break to talk about what we can expect from the legislature meeting in Georgia. And hang on to your wallets as the legislature returns here in Georgia.
35 after the hour, Eric Erickson here uh, across the whole state of Georgia. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The state legislature reconvenes next week uh, with a host of issues coming up. And joining me now to talk about it, the lieutenant governor of the state, Jeff Duncan. Uh, The most important question of the day for you is this. Have you gotten a haircut yet? Yes, sir. I've had a couple of haircuts. <laughs> good, good for you. I, I, I'm ready for my next one. Uh, look, looking sharp for the legislature meeting. So, what's on the agenda for you as, as we all get back to business in the legislature? Well, definitely looking forward to getting back. You know, it's kind of an odd posture just to kind of re- recap how we got here. Uh, Mid March, we had to hit the suspend button, which is, I believe, kind of the first time in the history of the General Assembly. Uh, and, and that really kind of put us in, in a, holding, a holding spot. Uh, we now have 11 legislative days left uh, for us to be able to tackle uh, a couple of big, big issues. Uh, one of those, which is the only constitutional mandate we've got, and that's to pass a budget. And uh, just a couple of months ago, the budget, the proposed budget that was kind of starting to float from the House over to the Senate certainly looks a lot different now with obviously right. pressure on revenues and spending and all that good stuff. So I, I, I know a lot of the big items that you and, and the governor both had wanted probably going to have to be on hold for a while while we look at the revenue picture. But, I mean, w- w- should we just expect cuts and, and no tax increases or anything? Well, look, I, I, it's, been, it's been very, very interesting to, to watch how the different departments and agencies have worked um, and really come up with ideas. The, the first revenue proposal uh, cut that the governor made was 14%. And now he's recently, I think last week, put out a recommendation that he's going to make a revised revenue estimate of a, of a decline of 11%. And so, you know, lots of different schools of thought, but it's been, it's been great to watch an overwhelming majority of the agencies say, hey, here's what we can do for 11% less. Uh, folks looking at opportunities to make their, 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 you know, their departments more efficient uh, and whatnot. And, but it's going to be painful, right? There's, there's just like every business and household facing right now, Eric. I mean, just drive up and down every street, every business is having to figure out how to do more with less. Um, you know, and, and the budget puts us in this awkward spot because not only do we have, you know, significantly declining revenues because of the economic situation that the COVID-19 you know, situation has put us in, but we also have additional pressure points. You know, when we talk about having to deploy the National Guard, when we talk about having to, you know, buy PPE equipment and use, you know, all kinds of additional state resources uh, to, to combat uh, the challenge that we face, uh, those are additional spending points. So it's, it's a kind of a two-pronged pressure. Yeah, it, it is. There's a lot of pressure out there, I, I suspect, on you guys right now. And a, one of the difficult ones, uh, just conservative from a philosophical standpoint, is I'm reading in the AJC now, group of corporations in the chamber uh, want swift passage of the House version of, of the hate crimes legislation. And uh, I mean, you you know, philosophically, I just I, I think it's bad to do this. I recognize we're one of only four states without it. But I, I do always find it interesting that a lot of these major corporations, they're so opposed to RIFRA. And, and yet they, they like these sorts of things and there can be no compromise on the issue. The, the Senate is the area where the pressure point is and all eyes are on the Senate as to how these things are going to be navigated. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. So over the last month, I have decided to, to really hone in on this and try to become as much of a subject matter expert as I possibly can uh, around the, the hate crimes initial legislation that came over from the House 
but but even way more important than just a piece of legislation the overall thoughts of the the communities around the state the businesses around the state that the, the general assembly uh, the senate both republicans and democrats uh, and so i've taken a month to just really gather as much information as i possibly can and you know it's been interesting to, to understand people's perspective, right? I mean, I think that that's kind of a faith-driven initiative of, of most of us that, that are uh, of similar faith is, is really looking for how do I gain more perspective into an issue? And I have much better perspective now into this issue. And so we're going to work hard here in the Senate over the, the remaining days, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We think there's some, some significant structural improvements we can make to the initial bill that came over from the House. Uh, we think we can make those. I'm working hard, Eric, genuinely as hard as I know how to work to get bipartisan, biracial, bi community, every stakeholder I can possibly get on board with with this and get it over to the House, get it passed, get it to the governor's desk and be able to say to the world, Georgia will be the worst place to commit a hate crime and it will be the best place to love your neighbor. And so I don't I don't take that as, a, as an easy challenge. It's not going to be simple. It's going to be difficult, but it's a challenge I'm, I really, really want to take on. Um, you know, interesting enough, uh, Andy Stanley, we, we, we attend uh, Browns Bridge, which is an affiliate of North Point. Mm-hmm. He had a series, a message yesterday, and, and he made just, just an incredibly powerful, simple point. And he said, you know, it's not just enough to not be racist. We need to be anti-racism. And so for me, I think that's a great challenge for us to look for opportunities to do that. Well, and in, in, in related to this, uh, it, Georgia has not necessarily had the problem some other states have had, but there is an issue when it comes to police uh, in the state. And do we look at reforms within the state when it comes to the police in the state at the local and the state level? Or are there things that the legislature can do to e- even just begin an investigation as to what goes on in the state? Yeah, so that's part of this process is really looking for ways to better understand reporting, better understand training, better understanding investigations into true hate crimes. You know, we, we've had incredibly, uh, you know, intelligent people come to us from all corners of, of this issue that have really brought up some interesting points. I mean, one of these uh, essentially is that, you know, if, if, there, if you have an enhanced, and this gets very technical, but if you have an enhanced sentence and just kind of tacked on to a charge, uh, the whole thing could be appealable. Uh, and so there's opportunities for us to, I think, really make this uh, an even more uh, uh, a more precise uh, instrument to attack uh, any sense of hate crimes, no matter where it happens, no matter who it happens to. Uh, as I said earlier, I want this to be the worst place to commit a hate crime in the country, and I want it to be the best place to love your neighbor. Now, let me just probe this slightly because one of the things that you hear out there, one of the talking points is that they just the Senate needs to pass the House version. And I've talked to enough judges in the state and others who, who actually question some of the provisions that would be in it. In fact, some of them said, yeah, just pass it because there are parts that probably get thrown out in court anyway. Uh, and it, there's this desire. You've only got 11 days. you got to deal with the budget. you got to deal with this. Uh, it sounds like what you're talking about is actually doing something that actually isn't simple, but actually might actually fix some problems in the state beyond what the initial symbolism of the legislation does. Eric, I didn't put my whole life on hold in my early 40s so I could come down here and champion pieces of legislation that get thrown out in court that don't really tackle the issue that it's being marketed as tackling. I put my whole life on hold to come down here to, to make a difference. 
And sometimes that isn't going to be popular in my party, and sometimes that's not going to be popular in the other party. I want it to be popular over the course of time. I want people to look at what I can do, our team can do, the Senate can do, to champion something big and bold that doesn't just simply you know, dress up a situation. It, it addresses the issue and sends a message that you know, I think affects us in all ways, right? It, it, it keeps the best and brightest here in Georgia. Uh, because they don't, they, they feel comfortable here in whatever community they live in. It attracts businesses and keeps businesses, not because we're grandstanding, but because we're actually creating an environment that leads the country on civil justice, you know, racial equity, all of these different things that are out there. Now, let me switch gears here because there's a breaking news story at the Atlanta Journal right now that Savannah is being looked at as a possible staging ground for a Republican convention uh, later this year. I, I, I assume, I, I know I would, I assume you would be fine with not having to travel out of state to go to the Republican convention. Man, I love Savannah. That, 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 uh, I haven't heard that yet. I've been, I've been busy tackling some issues here. Uh, I have sent a, a couple of notes. I, I was on Fox News the other day, and uh, I got a picture from, from a friend um, at the White House that took a picture of the TV and said, hey, you did good. And I said, hey, at, at the appropriate time, I'd love to ask uh, the, the president and the vice president to uh, consider Georgia. But uh, we'll see where that goes. We, we've got a lot of work between here and there to get done, and I'm going to stay focused on the task at hand. Well, good. I, I appreciate that very much, and, and I very much appreciate your focus. I, I want to ask you one last question here. In, in light of the business landscape in the state right now, uh, particularly as as the state goes and budget cuts are made, there always seem to be big initiatives within the state to attract outside business, all, oftentimes using taxpayer dollars. And we see that sometimes shaped into the budget, the different funds that are out there. Uh, where do you think the legislature needs to strike a balance now between our, our the state's ongoing campaign of bringing business into the state versus using tax credits and other issues to try to attract those businesses at a time money's in short supply? Yeah, you know, look, I, this is obviously a complex four-dimensional issue to try to solve. But I will tell you this, the most successful, most thriving, most permanent businesses, right? Those are like you know, your UPSs and, 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 and your bigger businesses that decide to move here. Uh, you know, I grew up in Alpharetta, and I got to watch a whole slew of, of families move in from the Northeast and from all over the country because their, their, their parents went to work for UPS. And at the end of the day, those folks came here because this is a great place to run your business, but it's a great place to raise your family too, Eric. And I think at the end of the day, we got to make sure that we protect that environment of, of really trying to create a great place because if somebody moves here for a tax incentive, then it, it, it's, it's a sugar high. It, it, it's, it's just a quick, it's a quick burst. Now, I understand we need to be competitive and try to make sure that we, we, we round some edges and whatnot uh, and, and look for opportunities to improve our, our offer. But at the end of the day, this is a great place to raise your family. And as a business owner myself and as somebody who's, who's uh, been in and around the business world for a long, long time, uh, I certainly know that the, 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 the lifestyle and the overall uh, comfort level of your employees is, is the biggest part about making these decisions. And so we need to make sure we keep continuing to focus on education, we need to make sure that we look to make sure that we have a, a call, you know, public safety and all of the infrastructure. All of those things make sense for folks to come here and call Georgia home. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for stopping by and, and speaking to family. My best to yours and, and look forward to seeing you back in the legislature next week. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, we will be back with your calls, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
So if you're just tuning in, uh, you missed it. And in fact, the lieutenant governor had not heard the news. Uh, the news of the day is that the RNC is in Savannah today, looking at Savannah as a potential site for a reduced size Republican convention. Now, normally uh, a convention, it would be too big for a place like Savannah. Savannah does not have the capacity to handle a convention like the Republican or the Democratic National Convention, but at a reduced size and scale, it would. And they're thinking of actually breaking it apart and doing it in different locations. Savannah would be an interesting one to do. Bring the president in. Uh, the, the Republicans also a little bit concerned about Georgia and the polling. Very interesting. We'll get into that in the next hour. Right now, though, I want to go to David. David, you are up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Hi there. It's a joy to talk to you. Thank you for uh, speaking in love. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of a small church, and I'm dealing with some of the issues you were talking about today. So you're speaking to my heart. Um, but more uh, to my mind right now is the fact that we have an election tomorrow, and I waited to the last minute to check some of the candidates out. I'm in Newton County. I live in Covington, and I have the ballot in front of me. The first few choices are pretty easy, but the rest of them are names I, I don't recognize and don't know. And I want to be sure not to vote for anyone who's pro-choice. I want pro-life people. How do I figure out what to do at the last minute? Oh, man, um, that one's tough. And, and I'm kind of with you. Hey, David, I got to tell you, I was my wife and I were riding around Bibb County last night, and I was seeing all these signs for for county commission and board of education. I thought, I don't know a single one of these people, which for me actually is kind of nice to not know these people. Um, but for you, um, okay, so here, here's general rule. Um, this is, it is, it's a primary. So if you're voting in the uh, Republican primary, you definitely are gonna be okay, regardless of who you pick by and large. When you get to the nonpartisan ballot, uh, you want to make sure you vote for the incumbent uh, justices on the court, on the Supreme Court, and judges on Court of Appeals. Uh, the challengers in those races are all uh, more sympathetic towards abortion rights. the The incumbents are pro life. Uh, when you get to the nonpartisan city council races, though, I, honest to goodness, I I couldn't tell you. Um, but for the judges, go with the incumbents for sure. The incumbents on the judges, okay, and the nonpartisan, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so the way the ballot uh, the works, you, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it's okay to not vote for people if you're not sure about it, correct? Correct. Uh, in fact, a lot of people don't vote for those uh, nonpartisan races where they don't know the people. Uh, and part of I feel kind of bad for the candidates right now because they can't campaign, they can't knock on doors, they can't get the word out. Uh, but if, if you don't know who they are, I, I honestly, I wouldn't vote for them. The only thing I will tell you for certain, though, is that even if you don't know who the judges and justices are on the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, those incumbents really do need your support because they really are good people and they're being challenged by people to their left uh, on social issues. And so be sure to vote for the the incumbent, Charlie Bethel, uh, and I forget the other uh, judges who are being challenged, but all the incumbents are good people. Uh, and then, you know, you're not going to go wrong with the Republicans. It's those nonpartisan city council and school board races that I, I got no idea. I don't even know in my own county who all they are. So uh, I, I'll i tell you what, I'll pray for you if you pray for me. <laughs> uh, you got yourself a deal, Eric. 
<laughs> Good. Well, look, I appreciate I, your time today. Yeah, absolutely, David. Thanks very much. I, I mean, y'all, I, I really do feel bad for the candidates right now, regardless of which party you're running in. It is so hard to get your message out right now. You cannot knock on people's doors. You've got to have a budget for mail and for TV and radio. Uh, I will tell you, I have endorsed some candidates. And if you want those, if you want that list, it's not every candidate in every race. It's just a a lot of the big races in the state. Uh, You can text the word Eric to 33777 and you'll get back the link. Uh, In fact, there are a couple, like for example, uh, I know, for example, if you're listening in the Upson County area right now, uh, there is a race to succeed Ken Pullen in the state legislature. Ken ran for a term, great guy, uh, saw it, had enough of it, and, and is not going back. And uh, you want to replace him with Beth Camp in District 131. That's over in Upson County. Uh, Beth Camp is who you want to support. If you're down in the Glen, the longer the McIntosh area, the incumbent Jeff Jones is who you want to support. Uh, if you're in the Coweta and the Fayette County area, Philip Singleton is who you want to support. If you're up in Cherokee County, uh, Scott Turner is not running again. Raj Sagu is who you want to support there. Uh, if you're in the Cherokee County area, in the Woodstock area, Michael Caldwell is not running again. Katrina Singletary is who you want to support. In the Gordon, the Murray, the Pickens, the White County, uh, Chuck Payne is being challenged, but you want to support Chuck Payne. You got to support Chuck Payne. If you're in the Harrelson, Paulding, or Polk area, uh, Bill Heath's seat for the state Senate, uh, Jason Anavatarte, Jeff Duncan, and I are both supporting him. If you're in the Cherokee and the North Fulton area, uh, Michael Caldwell is running for the state Senate. You want to support him. In the 14th Congressional District, uh, that's the Rome area, all the way up to North Georgia, Northwest Georgia goes down. Uh, I'm supporting Kevin Cook. Uh, nothing against Marjorie Green. Uh, she's going to get into the runoff, and let's get two people in the runoff who are going to be conservative. Uh, I am I would support Kevin because I, he's got the best record. Uh, he actually has a voting record in the state legislature, so I would support him. And then Matt Gertler in the 9th Congressional District, Rich McCormick in the 7th, Karen Handel in the 6th. And then th- this is the other big one. Uh, if you are in these judicial races, in Cherokee County, Bart Glasgow is running for state court judge, and he really needs your help. And David Willingham in Cobb County really needs your help. Uh, and the reason I, I'm uh, – those are the only two state court judges that I'm really going out of my way to support. And uh, Bart Glasgow and David Willingham, I do not know them. But I know a lot of people who not only know them but know the problems in their state courts and have said these are, these are the guys, particularly Bart Glasgow in Cherokee County. The number of people who tell me that that state court has just a, a host of problems uh, and has had a host of problems. I, I don't know a lawyer. Put it to you this way. I don't know a lawyer in Cherokee County who is happy with the state of their state court in Cherokee County which is pretty striking because usually you'll find some people who say it's okay. It's no big deal. Uh, I genuinely, honestly, I do not know any lawyer in those areas who are happy with their state court, which is striking. Now, 
I want to give you real quick a list, uh, particularly for those of you in the 9th and the 14th. I'm going to ignore some of these other races because they're not necessarily uh, in the listening audience, but I know the 9th and the 14th are. The 9th is Northeast Georgia and the 14th is Northwest Georgia. Here are the candidates in the 9th Congressional District. Um, Michael Boggess, Republican. Paul Brown, Republican. Andrew Clyde, Republican. Matt Gertler, Republican. Maria Strickland, Republican. Kevin Tanner, Republican. Ethan Underwood, Republican. Kelly Weeks, Republican. John Wilkinson, Republican. Devin Pandy, Democrat. Brooke Siskin, Democrat. And Dan Wilson, Democrat. Uh, In the 14th Congressional District. John Barge, Republican, Ben Bullock, Republican, Kevin Cook, Republican, John Cowan, Republican, Clayton Fuller, Republican, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican, Andy Gunther, Republican, Bill Hembree, Republican, Matt Laridge, Republican, Kevin Van Osdell, Democrat. Uh, the 9th and the 14th are going to be Republican. Whoever wins the primary will win the general election in those districts. Um, uh, there, are some, uh, there, there are some contests in other places, but right now those are the big ones. And some of these districts, I mean, take, for example, the 10th Congressional District. That's Jody Heiss's district. you got two Democrats who are trying to run against him. Jody's going to win. The big issues, though, are the the 14th, the 9th, the 7th, and the 6th. The 7th and the 6th are the metro Atlanta area. Rich McCormick in the 7th. Looks like he may get out of it without even a runoff. Uh, His polling numbers are so good. Then Karen Handel, same thing in the 6th Congressional District. I love my kids to death, but schooling at home. It's been an adjustment, particularly for my wife, who's been doing most of it. And we're learning, in fact, that given the structure and all, my kids are probably going to be great bartenders if we continue this homeschool thing. (laughs) Our kids' school is going to start up in August, it appears. Some schools, they're still not sure. Well, you may need flexibility. You may realize homeschooling is for you, but you need a structure. You want to find an online learning experience. Online learning has been new for a lot of us, Zoom calls for a lot of us, but Laurel Springs has been doing online learning for 30 years. As experts in online learning, Laurel Springs has the tools and the curriculum your child needs to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. If you're interested in trying online learning, try Laurel Springs. They're accredited with the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. It means that their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Eric today. Receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for your waived registration fee, laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Have we defunded the police yet? You been mugged yet? (laughs) Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877 Nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. I want to do this again at the top of the hour because I really ran through the names uh, and let me give you a sense of what's going on here in in some of the big races around the state. Now, some of them, you know, there there really isn't uh, a, a big issue, and I continue to get phone calls from people saying, "Wait a second, where's the Leffler Collins race? It's not on my ballot. Did I miss something? Well, it's not on your ballot." Because it's not going to be on the primary ballot. It is a special election, and that special election will be in November. And in this one, uh, you've got uh, at the top of the ballot is going to be David Perdue's race. And on the you'll have a Republican or a Democratic ballot, or you can get a nonpartisan ballot if you don't want to vote for any of the parties, but mostly you'll get a Democrat or Republican ballot. On the Republican side, you will also find Donald Trump's name. He will be unopposed on your ballot. And then David Perdue. And that's it. 
The Democrats, however, have a slate of people. Uh, Sarah Riggs Amico, um, uh, Keith DeJesus, uh, James Knox, John Ossoff, and Teresa Tomlinson will all be on the Democratic side. Now, I have some insider information. I am led to believe by people in the know that John Ossoff is on the cusp of getting this without a runoff. Uh, there, there is some concern a bit that he may get it without a runoff. Uh, by the way, uh, there's also a tr- uh, Trisha Carpenter McCracken uh, and a Maya Dillard Smith are also running. I uh, left their names out. Uh, neither of them, I, I, I don't know most of these people running. As I sneeze, professionally hitting the mute button. Uh, John Ossoff, though, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson are the big names running now. I, I got to tell you, the Sarah Riggs Amico one is it, somewhat befuddling if you've paid attention to Georgia politics because she uh, not only has money to be able to run, but was the lieutenant governor nominee two years ago. She was Stacey Abrams' wing woman. You would think she would be who the Democrats rallied to this time, and she's not. And then Teresa Tomlinson, all the major establishment leaders in the state have poured out uh, support for Tomlinson, and she's just got no traction at all. Uh, She ran a Columbus race uh, out of Columbus. She didn't go to Atlanta to run a race, and the result is that she left out on the dominant media market in the state. They've largely ignored her. She made some serious mistakes along the way. But man, is she pouring into it. John Ossoff took a shot at her the other day, which makes you wonder what's he seen in his polling because he had largely ignored her and now suddenly it didn't. Uh, Ossoff, though, he's got some baggage uh, that's going to be fun to get out on the campaign trail. It's going to be very, very interesting to see. Now, uh, what about the other races? Well, if you're down to the first congressional district, Buddy Carter's got some competition. Danny Meriden and, and Ken Yasger, uh, neither of them have a shot. Uh, he, Buddy Carter is the dominant incumbent. Uh, and then the Democrats will have Joyce Marie Griggs, Lisa Ring, and Barbara Steidman. Whoever wins the Republican primary is going to win. That's just the reality of it. Uh, in the second congressional district, you've got Vivian Childs and Don Cole, uh, and on the Republican primary going up against Sanford Bishop, who's going to win. In the third congressional district, Drew Ferguson is unchallenged. Uh, that's the Noonan area. Drew Ferguson is unchallenged versus Val Almanord, uh, who is doesn't have a shot. In the fourth congressional district, uh, the Republican uh, Josie Izamudin, Josie Cruz Izamudin. Look, I'm butchering the name, and I apologize. They're the Republican. Uh, on the Democratic side, you've got William Haston, Hank Johnson, and Elaine Neathman. Hank Johnson's going to win. He's the incumbent, and he's going to win the election, too. In the 5th Congressional District, you've got Angela Stanton King challenging uh, John Lewis and Barrington Martin. I don't know who Barrington Martin is, thinking he's going to run against John Lewis, but John Lewis is going to win. In the 6th Congressional District, you've got uh, Mikel Bartholomew. Is a Republican, Karen Handel, Blake Harbin, Joe Prophet, uh, and Paulette Smith. 
Uh, and they're running against Lucy McBath. This is going to be Karen Handel versus Lucy McBath in the general more likely than not. I got to tell you, this Joe Prophet guy, I don't know Joe Prophet. I, 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 he's apparently somebody. He's, he's an author and a businessman. And I mentioned somebody called me on my other show and asked, who is this Joe Prophet guy who's running? I said, I've never heard of him. Oh, my goodness gracious. You'd have thought the world was coming to an end when I said I hadn't heard of the guy. Listen. I am a generally plugged in person when it comes to campaigns and I had not heard of the guy and his campaign took it as an insult that I said, I hadn't heard of the guy. Maybe they should interpret it as their campaigns, not doing enough to win. If I, the guy who is the dominant voice in talk radio in Atlanta, hadn't heard of you. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I mean, that's just the reality. And I hadn't heard of you. I've heard of Blake Harbin, but I hadn't heard of Joe profit. My goodness. You would have thought I was insulting them. No, uh, just do better. Uh, and then uh, in the 7th Congressional District, you got Lisa Noel Babbage, Mark Gonsalves, Lynn Homrich, Zachary Kinnamore, Rich McCormick, and Renee Unterman and Eugene Yu. They're, they're going to be on the Republican side. The race is between Renee Unterman and Rich McCormick. Uh, they are close, but I'm hearing that McCormick actually may be able to get out of it without a runoff. Uh, he's a doctor. Uh, man, Lynn Homerich, remember she is the, um, she's the, the Home Depot executive who decided to run. I said the moment she decided to get into the race, she was going to be bled dry by her consultants. And sure enough, uh, I think oh, that Andrew, is exactly the course. case. Oh, that's her campaign now trying to, as I pull up her website, trying to play audio. Another reason she's going to get, man, she just, I, she's been nowhere. Now I realize again, you, you've got, uh, you've got COVID-19. You can't go knock on people's doors. But there are ways still to get your message out, and Rich McCormick and Renee Unterman have, and the rest of them have not. Now, these people, they're going to go up against Carolyn Bordeaux or John Eves or Nabila Ish, uh, Aisha Islam, uh, Zara Karinshak, Brenda Romero, or Rashid Malik. Now, uh, Nabila Islam has gotten, I think, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement. Interestingly enough, Occupation is listed as full-time candidate. Uh, that's going to be an interesting race. Carolyn Bordeaux, you will recall, was a professor, and she won the Democratic nomination last time, and she came within a couple of hundred votes of beating Rob Woodall. This is the one Republican district Republicans in Washington are embracing for a loss. Uh, but if you get a good candidate, you may be able to hang on to it. And Rich McCormick is a good candidate. Uh, I'm supporting him. He's got a lot of ties in the community that transcend party that could help him. In the 8th Congressional District, you've got Vance Dean and Danny Ellison and Austin Scott running on the Republican side and Lindsey Holiday, the dentist, uh, running on the Democratic side. Lindsey, I think, runs every couple of years for something, and uh, now it is the the for Congress. Uh, and Austin Scott will win. Danny Ellison and Vance Dean aren't going to get any traction. Uh, and Austin Scott is the incumbent Republican. The district is drawn just for him. He's going to win. In the 9th Congressional District, again, you got Michael Bogus, Paul Brown, Andrew Clyde, Matt Gertler, Maria Strickland, Kevin Tanner, Ethan Underwood, Kelly Weeks, John Wilkinson, and they're going to run against De Devin Pandy, Brooks Siskin, or Dan Wilson. Now, I don't know some of these people. Like Maria Strickland, I, I don't know who she is. I'm supporting Matt Gertler. I did not know that Andrew Clyde was running of Clyde's Armory. If, if Gertler was not in the race, I bet I would support Andrew Clyde. That guy's awesome. Uh, he really is. I didn't even know he was running for Congress, uh, but he is. And he actually has a really good ad out uh, about standing up to government. Now, you will recall with him, the IRS in 2013 
uh, confiscated $940,313 of his business. Uh, And they'd been doing this to business owners around the country. It was known as civil asset forfeiture. And uh, he fought the IRS. He actually enlisted Doug Collins' help. And as a matter of fact, uh, Congress passed the Clyde Hirsch Sowers Respect Act. It was signed into law by President Trump. And he's just got one heck of a story about it. Uh, He was on TV about it uh, and, and fought the government. And he won. He fought the IRS and he won. He's got a really compelling story. Uh, I hear that Matt Gertler, who I'm supporting, has a dominant position. Kevin Tanner, who is one of the flunkies for the Speaker in the House, uh, is is given Gertler a run for his money. Vote for Gertler. Um, Tanner and the Speaker are just, they're in it together. John Wilkinson's one that surprises me. John Wilkinson lives in go a very nice guy, decided to run for Congress. He's in the state Senate, uh, and he's, I'm just, there's no buzz about him. That's just fascinating. Uh, he's a very nice guy. Uh, Jody Heiss is running again for the 10th. Andrew Ferguson or uh, Tabitha Johnson Green will run against him, and neither of them are going to beat him. In the 11th, you got Barry Loudermilk has no opposition to Dana Barrett, who has no opposition on the Cobb, in the Cobb County side of the 11th Congressional District, and she won't win. That district is for uh, Loudermilk. The 12th district is Rick Allen's. That's in the Gusta area. Uh, he's going to be challenged by either Liz Johnson or Dan Steiner. Uh, neither of them have a shot against Rick Allen in that district. The 13th district is a Democratic district. Uh, the incumbent is David Scott. Uh, he is not going to lose, but the Republicans run against him. Cesar Gonzalez, Becky Heights, Michael Owens. Uh, Janquel Peters is a Democrat challenging him, as is Keisha Waits, and neither of them are going to beat him. In the 14th congressional district, again, you got John Barge. Ben Bullock, Kevin Cook, John Cowan, Clayton Fuller, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy Gunther, Bill Hembry, and Matt Lowridge are the Republicans. One of them will win. I am told Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to get into the runoff. Everybody's poll has her getting into the runoff. Uh, And then there's a fight for second place, I'm told, between Kevin Cook and Bill Hembry and John Cowan. Uh, is a is a big fight for second place. I hope Kevin Cook gets into the runoff. And if you got any doubts in that race, support Kevin Cook. Uh, that district it goes from Clay uh, from Carroll County all the way up to the Tennessee line on the west side of the state. Goes through Floyd County, runs through part of Paulding County. Uh, Kevin Cook is a a great great conservative in the state legislature. Uh, just just love that guy dearly, and really really hope he's able to get into that runoff. But there is going to be runoff there, and there's a Democrat running, Kevin Van Osdale. And he is not going to win. Now, those are, I I feel like I've done my bit for King and Country reviewing these federal races for you. I will tell you in my race, in my area, I should say, I'm probably going to vote in the Democratic races. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. But so here's the thing. and, And some of you are in the same position as me. You're in a part of the state where one party is so dominant that to win in the county, you've got to run in that party. So, for example, if you're in Forsyth County, Georgia, the Republican Party is so dominant in Forsyth County, Georgia, that if you're a Democrat, you've got to run as a Republican. And the job for Republicans is to weed out who the Democrats are and make sure they don't win. If you are in Bibb County, where I am, you got to run as a Democrat to win. Like, for example, there's a guy, I don't know him. I've got a, a lot of friends and neighbors are supporting the guy, but he's running for sheriff and he's running as a Republican. And so he's probably not going to win uh, the, the sheriff. And by the way, I would vote for the current sheriff, David Davies, anyway, where I live because he's a, he's a super guy. 
uh, and and he's always helped my family out. And you know, he has preemptively, when there have been controversies, has always made sure that I got a there's a sheriff's deputy who patrols the neighborhood and whatnot. So I, I mean, I'd vote for him anyway. But he's running as a Democrat. If you want to, if you want to take on the sheriff, you got to run in a Democratic primary because Bibb County is so Democrat. And the same with the 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 district attorney's race is the only contested race in the primary, and whoever wins the district attorney's race in my county, Bibb County, is going to win the general election because one, there's not a Republican running, and two, you, you whoever the Democrat is is going to win, and so it's a big race. David Cook is the incumbent DA, and he is a he's a he's to the left of me on pretty much every social issue. Like for example, he and I disagree on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I support it. He doesn't. Uh, there are a host of issues. He is a true believer on the partisan progressive side, but he's also a really good DA. He's been very good in the community. But one of the things he did, it actually, I, I got to laugh about it a little bit. He's been very aggressive in cracking down an illegal activity that sometimes happens in convenience stores. You know, the, the, the gambling machines and stuff that they have in gas stations. A lot of time, those things are fronts for drug operations and other issues. And he's a very big believer that if you, if you crack down on some of the small stuff, you fix the big stuff. So, for example, he's highly involved in nonprofits in the area trying to fix the things that cause families to fall apart. And his thinking is that if you can keep a family together, you reduce the, the precursors to crime. So you reduce the overall crime rate and every study out there shows it works and he's been doing it. But one of the things is you go after some of these smaller crimes, you keep the bigger crimes from happening. And so he's been doing that. Well, convenience store owners are funding a challenge against him because they feel like he's targeted them, which he hasn't really done. He's been going after crime. Uh, but it, it's 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 a big issue within the black community and that they found a, a challenger who happens to be black. And there are members of the black community who want to vote for a black district attorney, which would be a historic milestone for the county, even though David Cook has been a very good D.A., including to the black community. And it's just it's been fascinating to watch the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party in Bibb County. And and if you want a D.A., who takes crime seriously, you kind of got to vote for David Cook and you got to kind of vote in the Democratic primary. And so I'm thinking, I, I at least I can vote for Bernie Sanders and maybe hurt Joe Biden a little bit, I guess. There's the one silver lining there. But I'm probably going to have to do that in, in people in the state. I, I, I still don't understand why district attorney and sheriff are partisan racists, but they are. It's like the coroner. Why is the court? I know I realize the coroner is an elected position because the coroner can summon grand juries and stuff like that. But why, why are these things partisan races? It has never made sense to me as long as I, I've lived in Georgia for 25 years and it's never made sense to me why these races are partisan. All right. I, I'm going to move on from who's on the ballot now. I look, I realize that people still have questions on some of these races and things, and I don't know them all. Uh, if you want to see the ones I'm supporting, you can text Eric to three, three, seven, seven, seven. I want to shift over to the Johns Creek police chief. He's written a thousand words on Facebook and he's accusing church leaders in the Johns Creek area of contributing to discord between law enforcement and the public. Chris Byers is his name. He says he supports black lives and believes racism was in the heart of Derek Chauvin, the officer in Minnesota charged in the death of George Floyd, but he doesn't support the Black Lives Matters movement. And he writes, I do not support 
the Black Lives Matter as a movement as it seems to glorify the killing of my brothers and sisters. It's not what you pastors and religious leaders think it is. Stop trying to be relevant and look deeper into what you're saying, posting, and tagging before you do it. But please never give up the fight against racism. We have a long way to go, but we need everybody moving in the same direction. Now, he's uh, addressed his post to pastors, youth pastors, worship leaders, and directors of ministries. He didn't explain what statements they made uh, or why his criticism was based on what officers told him, he said, and not what he'd heard or seen firsthand. Uh, and the city, of course, is distancing themselves to some degree. Uh, but Byer says he's gotten uh, a lot of people really upset with what's going on. And, you know, this this goes full circle to the beginning of my show today. I am seeing a whole lot of pastors, particularly younger pastors, going beyond the statement of Black Lives Matters to actually wanting to work with the group Black Lives Matters. And as I pointed out this morning, the group Black Lives Matters is different from the factually true statement that Black Lives Matters. The the group is a far left organization that supports a number of things not compatible with Christian faith. It is a secular organization uh, that leans uh, towards the progressive left. Uh, it, it, uh, does, it believes that the two-parent nuclear household is Western-imposed and should not be supported, among other things. It is, it is a left-wing group. This is part of the problem, and this is why I think some people are cautious on stuff like this is because they understand there's a problem and they wish to speak out and agree with the problem. They want to recognize the problem. They want to take action against the problem, but they know how it always goes. Left-wing groups with left-wing values try to co-opt the whole thing and rush forward uh, and, and take hold of the conversation and push everyone in their direction. And that in and of itself is a problem. Now, if you're a leftist, what you'll say is, what, are you defending racism? You don't want to go along with with me and my group. You must be supporting racism. No, no, that's not it at all. But the issue is you can't defund police departments. You, You defund police departments or you, you call for violence against the police as retribution, you're, you're wrong. And some protesters out there are doing just that. They, they not only want to defund police departments, they want to seek revenge against police in general, as opposed to bad police officers, the police in general. You can't go that far, and yet some of them are. And they're beginning to turn on themselves as well, which is what's happening at various newspapers around the country and at CrossFit of all places. I'll explain when we come back. Hello there. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Feel free to call in, give us a holler if you want, uh, about something relevant though. Now, they're eating their own. I don't know if you've seen this. The, 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 you know, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks always fight. So in the Soviet Union, the, the Mensheviks, Mensheviks were socialists. 
and the Bolsheviks were the hardcore commies. And the Mensheviks for a long time were winning. Uh, but th- then, of course, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were ultimately able to to uh, undo them. And uh, the Bolsheviks won. In China, you had various parts of the communist regime there uh, squabble with each other. And ultimately, the Maoist won. It is always the nastiest breed of communist. In, the battling w- in battles with other communists, it's always the nastiest communists who win. The, the, your role as a decent human being is to root for injuries in the battle between the commies. The longer the commies fight each other, the 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 less they have to go after us. Well, in the newsrooms, the Bolsheviks are winning out. In the New York Times, James Bennett, the editorial page editor, has been ousted for daring to run Tom Cotton's op-ed. Tom Cotton's op-ed, backed by 58% of the American public, uh, was published in the New York Times. The New York Times editorial page editor admitted he hadn't actually read the op-ed first. Everyone else in the chain of command did. They're just looking for an excuse. And he's been pushed out the door for daring to air a view that reporters at the New York Times cried about. Here's Tom Cotton talking about this. Unbelievable. Real quick, before we uh, go on to China, I I wanted to mention that the number of people who have written op-eds for the New York Times, we've got one here from the Taliban. I don't think there was any controversy around this. The headline tear, what we the Taliban want. That was an op-ed in the Times. There was also one from Putin. Uh, There was one years back from Hitler. Yeah, I don't I don't remember all the the woke staffers at The New York Times rising up in arms whenever they published the Taliban op ed just a few months ago. Uh, It it just goes to show you the moral rot inside some of our media and academic institutions that they don't get outraged uh, about the Taliban, but they do get outraged about conservative opinion. Uh huh. They they don't get outraged by (laughs) the New York Times did publish an op ed by Hitler. To my knowledge, they haven't actually um, repented of that. But nonetheless, uh, you, you, you do get the point here. Well, it's not just the New York Times. Get this. The Philadelphia Inquirer, Stan Wisnowski, resigned as their top editor. Stan Wisnowski, the top editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, has announced his resignation days after discontent among the newspaper staff erupted over a headline on a column about the impact of the civil unrest following the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Wisnowski, 58, led the paper over two turbulent periods in recent years, driving it, its sister paper, The Daily News, and its website, TheInquirer.com, to reshape themselves in the digital age, transform the new business. He was key in the creation of Spotlight PA, a new multi-reporter team to provide news outlets across Pennsylvania with investigative coverage of state government. He was in charge in 2011 when the Inquirer investigated violence within Philadelphia schools, a series awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. But he stepped down after the young millennial reporters complained. Why? Because, well, it was an insensitive headline over a column by Inga Safran. 
He joined the two other top editors in signing an apology characterizing the headline, Buildings Matter Too, as deeply offensive and apologized for it. The column had explored the destruction of buildings amid the looting that accompanied some of the nationwide protests over police violence, even before the headline was published. Wisnowski and other editors were scheduling a staff-wide Zoom meeting to discuss race at the Inquirer and the pressure in particular faced by journalists of color. He was pushed out. He is of the left, but he is not a Bolshevik. So he was pushed out. Now, it's it's coming all around. It is, it's also happening at CrossFit. Um, what's the guy's name? CrossFit CEO. Uh, what, what is, what's his name? Uh, he has had to apologize. And it's not stopping the departure from CrossFit. Uh, it is, oh, da, 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 Greg Glassman, who is a, a hardcore libertarian. Uh, Greg Glassman responded to uh, the Institute for Health Metrics, you know, the IHME that uh, does the modeling everybody pays attention to. Well, they, they've declared racism is a public health issue. And Greg Glassman, the CEO of CrossFit, replied to that tweet, it's Floyd 19. Ooh. Yes, he did. And then he blew up in a second post about how the IHME, how are they going to model this? They made everyone shelter in place. They wrecked lives and businesses. And now suddenly getting woke is okay. And it rubbed a whole lot of people the wrong way. Um. He has now come out and tweeted saying, I, the CrossFit HQ and CrossFit community will not stand for racism. I made a mistake by the words I chose yesterday. My heart is deeply saddened by the pain it has caused. It was a mistake, not racist, but a mistake. Uh, it was the, no, the not racist that they, they want him to bend over backwards and, and apologize. And by the way, CrossFit gyms are disaffiliating. Sponsors are pulling out. Uh, sponsors are pulling out. Reebok is, is ending their deal. Rogue Fitness, uh, which is one of the most prominent manufacturers of equipment in the CrossFit community, is, is pulling out. Uh, you've got Rich Froning, who is probably the most famous CrossFitter in the world, is saying they're disaffiliating with, uh, they won't stand with, he won't stand with CrossFit CEO. Uh, Noah Olson, another very famous CrossFitter, says he's not going to play in the CrossFit games. Uh, that, that he loves the community, he loves the people, but he just can't tolerate this. He's taking actions. He's taking action. Now, here's here's the 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 funny thing here. If you so I go to a, a gym that is not really tied to but part of it being part of CrossFit is it's also part of a shakedown. You're paying money to CrossFit and stuff like that. And I go to a gym here in Macon where I am, uh Tau Training. It's over by the new mall. Um, back behind Georgia Bob's, if you know where Riverside Drive is, that area is a fantastic place. Uh, love it there. I was going to CrossFit and Compass, which is up behind the Walmart on Zebulon Road, uh, but my schedule changed with this radio show. Couldn't I was going at nine in the morning there. Uh, now I got to go in the afternoons. Well, CrossFit boxes, they call them, gyms, they've got very weird hours. And they don't run the air conditioner. They try to encourage people to come early in the morning. And I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm not getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the gym. Just not going to do it. Not going to get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to the gym either. I'm not insane. 
So I pay extra and I go in the afternoon and I work one-on-one with my trainer. And it, it was the place that had been CrossFit Tau. They've changed the name Tau Training Facility. And they did this a while back. And a lot of it is CrossFit has a meaning for a lot of people, very cult-like meaning for a lot of people, deservedly so in some cases. And it's rather off-putting. And, and the, the place that I go wants to be a gym that uses some of the principles, but, but well rounded. Listen, I love going. I hate the exercises. It, it's it's awful, but I, I like it so much more than a traditional workout. You're doing uh, full body workouts. You, you do it for about an hour. You kill yourself, but I'll burn five, 600 calories in an hour compared to just a, a normal, I'm going to go bench press or what have you. I, I, I really enjoy it. It's a great guy. It fits my schedule. I pay extra to make sure it fits my schedule and I enjoy it other than I wish we ran the air conditioner. But nonetheless, if you get into the CrossFit community, what you find is there is a strong Christian undercurrent in a lot of the CrossFit community. And they're not really open about it, but if you go on their social media pages, you will find a lot of them uh, have references to God in there. CrossFit is built for Instagram. You got a bunch of ripped athletes who have like zero body fat and they like to show it all off on Instagram. And you get on Instagram and you start following some of these guys Uh, You get to know some of them. Some of them listen to this program. Some of them are readers of my site, gotten to know them. Very big Christian community. Well, you know, my worlds collided uh, about two years ago now in that I was in a class in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary with a guy studying for the ministry who happened to be one of the top communications guys for CrossFit worked directly for the CEO of CrossFit. And he actually lives uh, in Alabama. He commutes over to RTS in Atlanta. And he dared to defend a CrossFit box in Indiana that did not want to have a pride day, that did not want to have a pride celebration. And the owner of this CrossFit gym very straightforwardly said, we are people of faith. The Pride Month and the surrounding events are incompatible with Christianity, and we're not going to have a celebration of it. And the criticism was intense, and people were quitting the gym. People were being pressured to quit the gym. Other CrossFit owners were being pressured to denounce the guy who owned the place. Uh, They wanted to drive him out of business. Well, this guy I was in seminary with, who's the communications guy for CrossFit, on his private personal, non-corporate Facebook account said, I'm an evangelical Christian. These people are just reflecting Christian values. They shouldn't be persecuted for standing up for their faith. And it was a huge outrage that he would do that. And the, the alphabet gang that came for that gym for not celebrating the alphabet gang came for this guy too. And CrossFit threw him under the bus. And he said his views were not reflective of CrossFit. They were his own personal views. And he was happy to stand for this gym. Uh, and and they should not be persecuted for believing their values. You don't have to, if you don't like it, you don't have to go there. And it was too much. It was too much. And a lot of the Christians in the CrossFit community privately seethed about it. They didn't want to say anything but they were somewhat upset. Well, more than a little somewhat upset. I, I heard from a couple of the of the well-known people, famous enough that you would probably know them, who behind the scenes were livid that it had happened. 
And so now here comes the the Greg Glassman, the CEO of CrossFit, who says what he says now after throwing this guy under the bus for standing up for his faith. And they're just kind of sitting back and saying, oh, they're coming for you now. Irony knows no bounds. Uh, it, it was it was very interesting that uh, the CrossFit CEO, who's, who's very radically libertarian on this stuff, he could stand with the alphabet gang against the Christians. And a lot of the Christians within CrossFit were not very happy about it. Well, you know, within Christianity, there is a strong current uh, against racism, as there should be. Jesus says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. Uh, we should have a colorblind society if we're to be more Christ-like. And what you find more and more increasingly is it is Christians in the United States are the biggest proponents of interracial adoption. And that's a good thing because as Christians adopt across racial lines, white Christians who adopt black children are finding that in fact, uh, there really is a racism that exists in this country that they were not aware of. What is so interesting to me is that it is the woke progressives who are most likely to oppose uh, interracial adoption. It is the far left and the alt-right who both oppose interracial adoption. But so many Christians out there are engaged in interracial adoption and even those within the CrossFit community, and they, they compete with and are on teams with athletes who are not white, and they encounter things they and their their all white communities never encountered, and it opens their eyes. The scales fall off their eyes. They they, they see things they didn't see before. They realize there are things incompatible with their faith uh, in the world around them, and so they've become very vocal on this as they should against racism. And here comes the CrossFit CEO, who would not stand with the he would not they would not stand with the Christian against the alphabet gang. And now the CrossFit CEO is saying things that are offensive to a lot of people right now when it comes to race, that he should have known better. And all these Christians who have been privately seething are now saying, you know what? We're done. We're, we're, we're done. If you're not going to, if you're not going to take this issue seriously, we're done. So they're going to be community boxes instead of CrossFit boxes. It's just fascinating at the New York times at this, the, the, it's, I mean, it really is natural selection, is it not? I mean, it's it's like watching, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's There's no grace. You're seeing the Bolsheviks of the newsrooms destroy each other. You're seeing people who have prided themselves on wokeness being burned for not being woke enough, and that's part of it. Is It's always you got to ratchet it up and ratchet it up and ratchet it up, and there's never a release valve. You've always got to be further and further and further and further woke, and I actually think there is a political angle here that ultimately stuff like this winds up playing to in the to the president's hand, and that's why so many Democrats, including Al Sharpton, are out there today saying, whoa, wait a second, man. We can't defund the police. we got to think about this because they know this stuff, it is playing into the hands of the president. All of it is. The the woke crowd, you can never be woke enough for them. You know, there are some interesting warning signs out there for the president's re-election. Uh, consider 80% of Americans right now uh, across polls are alarmed at what they believe is a more chaotic country. 
a majority of Americans are now concerned about the direction of the country. This has been one of the interesting things about uh, the president and his reelection. Up until a few months ago, a majority of Americans actually liked the direction of the country, even if they didn't like the president. And now suddenly you've seen a decisive turn on this that uh, most Americans actually are upset with the direction of the country. The president's job approval is now at all-time lows, even for this president, lows below 40%, which is fascinating. Uh, A serious number of Americans thinking of going for Joe Biden, even though they don't like him. Uh, But then there's this. Consider this, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Who would be best on cutting unemployment? Trump 48, Biden 35. Who'd be best on the economy? Trump 48, Biden 37. Who'd be best on China? Trump 43, Biden 40. And then here, who would be best on representing change? Biden 41, Trump 37. Who'd be best on the pandemic? Biden 47, Trump 38. Who'd be best on bringing the country together? Biden 51, Trump 26. I want you to meditate on on one of these. Who would be best at representing change? Joe Biden is at 41% and Donald Trump is at 37%. That's a four-point advantage for Joe Biden on representing change, even though the people think overwhelmingly he would do better at bringing the country together. That's really not good for Joe Biden. And when it comes to the economy, Voters go with the president by an even bigger margin. The president, if he can stay focused and disciplined, has an ability to pull this thing off. But if he doesn't stay focused on the economy and job creation and make that his message, he's going to lose. And there are some within his administration who have been fighting from the outside for so long that they don't actually recognize, you know, you're on the inside now. It's hard to say you're an outsider when you're the president of the United States. And they've got to get out of the the out-of-party uh, mindset and get into a leadership mindset that, that they've been battling everybody and the president's a fighter and, and everyone likes the president to fight on his side. But the problem is the American people are starting to get tired of the fighting and they want some level of, of bringing the country together. And people are voting not on jobs. They're voting on who can bring the country together, and that's going with Joe Biden. If the president can make it about jobs and cut the drama elsewhere, that gives the president an advantage Joe Biden doesn't have, and he can win. Again, I, I say all the time, and broken record time here, the president's motto needs to be, I'll keep you safe and put you back to work. And every single public policy position, every single statement he makes needs to be about keeping people safe and getting them back to work. And as the Democrats amp up this idea of of cutting police forces, defunding police offices around the country, he's got even more room to maneuver on this front of keeping people safe and putting people back to work. He's just got to show a little bit of focus, as does his team, if they can, please.